introduce our speaker for this morning. So, uh, Aaron, why don't you come up? Give him a round of applause. So Aaron's a member of our body. He's been here for the last few months, and uh, he's got an awesome ability to teach and preach. And so uh, I'm excited to hear his word for today. Let me just pray for him real quick. If you could just join me real quick, that'd be awesome. God, I pray that you would just anoint him with your spirit, that he would speak. God, your, your word to us this morning. And God, may our hearts and our minds and our spirits just be open to the word you have for us. God, would you use him in a powerful way to speak to us? God, use him that he may experience your joy through this experience. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for uh, excited to be here this morning. If you do have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8, fourth book uh, in the New Testament. That's where we're going to be spending uh, most of our time in that first paragraph or so uh, of John 8. And while you're turning there, I want to ask a question to help kind of frame and set up what we're going to be talking about this morning. And the question is this, what vision of, a, of the good life are you trusting? Now, I, I get that's a loaded question, but think about it for a second. Whose vision or what vision of what it means to live a good, beautiful, flourishing life are you trusting? Do you find to be the most true? You know, we live in a, a cultural moment, I would say, that's, you know, you know, 24-hour news cycle, you know, constant social media, so much going on. So much in our culture is pulling and, and vying for our att- attention and allegiance to different narratives of what it means to live a good, beautiful, flourishing life. And it's not all bad, right? A lot of what's out there can be helpful and insightful and very encouraging at times. But at other times, it, it might not be as useful for us as apprentices of Jesus. And I often find that as human beings, we often live in one of two main sort of cultural narratives of what it means to live a good, flourishing life. And the first one that I want to point out has to do with performance. And this idea simply is that the better you're performing in life, the more successful your life is. The better life you're living, whether that's moral performance or performance in your career or vocation, the better you perform, the more you achieve, then you're living a good life. That's kind of one of the narratives that's out there. You know, the downside of this is that if you're not performing well, it can lead to feelings of insecurity or shame or just feeling guilty about, you know, not measuring up to the standards of our day. And perhaps maybe if you are rocking it, if things are going well and you are performing well, then there's often the tendency to maybe look down on others and kind of have this self-righteous attitude. You know, that's one idea, the the performance narrative. The second one I want to point out is this idea of personal fulfillment. And this is just simply can be captured with short phrases like, you do you, right? Be true to yourself. You know, trust your feelings. It's like Obi-Wan telling Luke at the end of A New Hope, trust your feelings, Luke. Right, which is a great line when you're, you know, going to destroy the Death Star. But, you know, there's probably better lines to live by in day-to-day life as followers of Jesus. But, again, all that to say, you know, we live in this moment where we think not only, we're raised at a young age to think that not only do we have the ability, but also the freedom to just go ahead and do whatever the heck we want, right? And, again, not all of this is bad. The performance side, the personal fulfillment side, it's not all bad. But my hope and prayer is, is that as we look at this paragraph in John 8, 
we would begin to see that there's more for us as followers of Jesus. That God would be speaking to us, that through this text, that we'd begin to see that Jesus is inviting and speaking to us to, to follow him in his way of living, his way of being human, that trusting that what he has to offer, his narrative, his good news is actually good news. And that we as followers of Jesus would be more aligned with Jesus' vision of what it means to live the good life as opposed to the narratives of our culture in our day. So with all that as sort of a setup, let's kind of read through this passage. It's only about a paragraph or so. And then we'll kind of break it down line by line, put it back together, and then figure out how this applies to us in 2019 in this new year. Sound like a plan? All right. So John chapter 8, actually, technically it's the last verse of chapter 7 going into chapter 8. But we'll have it on the screen here behind me. John 8 says this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus then straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, if you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with that story, especially that last line. You know, where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. A beautiful line, something to put to memory for sure, right? And before we get to that last line, there's a few things I wanted to point out in this text I think are important for us to understand. The first is kind of more so in way of background. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, I know it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, but if you've been with us through our series in John, we've been, you know, going through the Gospel of John, and we've already made some progress into chapter 8 to this point. But now, this week, we're coming back to the beginning of chapter 8. And you might be wondering, if you remember, why are we skipping and why are we coming back? Well, the short answer is simply that the majority of chapters 7 and 8 take place during the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. So it just made sense to do those stories consecutively over back-to-back weeks. But this story, the passage that we just read together, doesn't explicitly take place during the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. There's actually some debate amongst scholars as to where exactly this paragraph fits originally within the Gospel of John. Even some ancient manuscripts have it in the Gospel of Luke. Now, fun rabbit hole for another day, but all that to say, we believe that this scripture, this passage, is scripture. An inspired, trustworthy, eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and that it is for us today. Now, let's kind of look through it, kind of line by line here. In verse 2, the scene is kind of set up where Jesus is there like any good Jewish rabbi would be, sitting as he's teaching the large crowds. So just imagine the large crowds coming to gather to hear Jesus sitting down to teach. But then, in verse 3, 
the Pharisees enter the scene. And they bring this woman, we'll talk about her in a second, they bring this woman front and center, but the Pharisees arrive in verse 3. Now, quick word on the Pharisees. If you've grown up and you've kind of been a part of church for any length of time, you probably are familiar with the Pharisees, right? And they're always considered like the bad guys in the Gospels, right? It seems like on every other page they're in some sort of uh, disagreement or conflict with Jesus. And that makes sense, right, to think of them as the bad guys. But at the same time, in the first century, in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees or the, the religious elite of the day were actually very well respected. They were actually held in very high regard because they were the ones that sought to obey God in all areas of life. They were the ones that understood their Hebrew Bibles, what we call the Old Testament. Thus, they understood Israel's past, Israel's history. Israel's past and Israel's history, which included that Yahweh, the one true creator God that made the whole universe, had invited and called Israel to be his special chosen people, that through Israel, that all the nations would be blessed. That through Israel, the blessing and the peace and the shalom of God would reach the entire world, the entire rest of the nations. And despite Israel choosing their own way, if you know the Old Testament, despite Israel choosing their own way over and over and over again, the hope and the promise of the Hebrew Scriptures was that one day God would be faithful and God would return and his kingdom would come and his, his shalom and his peace would infiltrate every fiber of the universe. This was the hope of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Pharisees understood in that day. And the problem, though, like I just alluded to, was that Israel kept choosing their own way, if you know the Old Testament, right? Over and over and over again, the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and company, are constantly calling Israel to come back to God, to trust God, to return to him. Yet despite Israel's disobedience, God is faithful, but in the process, Israel is taken into exile by the empire of Babylon, and then several other nations after that. Then fast forward, though, 600 years from the time of the Babylonian exile to the time of Jesus— Israel, even though some of Israel is still, is actually back in the land, Israel at an existential level is still in a state of exile. Rome is the new Babylon now. And Israel, for the most part, is still under oppression under the Roman Empire. And all that, all that to say, though, is that the Pharisees understood that what got Israel into all this mess was Israel choosing their own way over and over and over again. So, this is why this is important. So, what will get Israel out of this mess? Well, Israel being faithful to God, right? Israel following God's scriptures. Israel following what God has taught in the Bible. So then, when a first century rabbi like Jesus of Nazareth comes walking around first century Galilee and begins to have all these dinner parties, right, with tax collectors and prostitutes, and the immoral people of his day. You know, the alarm bells begin to go off if you're the religious leaders. That this is a little scandalous. This Jesus who, yes, has the reputation of teaching with authority, is also seemingly to be compromising, right? Seemingly, you know, hanging out with all of the wrong kinds of people. Now I mention that, all that to say, because this moment here in John 8 is charged the tension here is thick. With all of that in the background, this is what's, what's happening. You have the crowds gathering to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees, with all of that, and, with all that going on in their past, bring this woman caught in adultery. And, you know, just imagine with me 
for a second, being in that scene there. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the shame that this woman probably is feeling at this point. Because we get this scathing indictment from the mouth of the Pharisees. In front of everybody, in front of the crowds, to Jesus. This woman was caught in the what? Very act of adultery. In the law, they say. So when you see that phrase, in the law, I think the first five books of, of your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In the law, Moses says that such women should be stoned to death. But Jesus, Rabbi, what do you say? What do you say? And I just almost imagine you being there and just a hush amongst the crowd. How is Jesus going to respond at this point? You know, the Pharisees, they bring up the Bible, right? They're, they say, in the law, Moses says this. Now, a couple of things I want to point out with that phrase, when the Pharisees mention in the law, right? They say that in the law, Moses says that such women be stoned. There's a couple of things I want to point out, with, point out here. Stay with me. This is a little bit technical, but I promise payoff is coming, all right, in a few minutes. First thing I want to point out is the hypocrisy in what the Pharisees just said there. They say in the law, Moses command that such woman be stoned. We're not entirely sure what passage exactly they're referring to in the law, but the leading theory is it's that, it's that it's either Leviticus 20, which is everyone's favorite book in the Bible, right? One year reading plan, you have that to look forward to in a couple months. Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22. Both passages do in fact state that the penalty for adultery is in fact death. So that's in there in the scriptures. But... The Leviticus 20 passage states that both the man and the woman deserve death. In John chapter 8, where's the, where's the man? It's conveniently missing, right? And the ver- verse 6 kind of gives an insight into the motives of the Pharisees. They appear to, you know, quoting the Bible, right? Wanting to follow the Bible. But their motive was what? They were using this question as a trap, as a test, The hypocrisy is just off the charts. The second thing I want to point out is the objectification that's going on. Kind of in a similar vein, but slightly different. The objectification, they are using this woman for their own agenda, for their own means. Namely, to trap Jesus, to get him to say something or do something, so they will have some sort of basis to accuse him. Now, all that to say, Jesus is in a predicament. You know, pretend you don't know the end of the story. How is Jesus supposed to respond here? Is he going to continue with that reputation of compassion and grace that the crowds know him by? Or is he going to actually, you know, be someone who follows what the the book of Leviticus says and say stone her? Because on one hand, if Jesus says stone her, that's what Moses says to do that then not only is Jesus going to be in trouble with the Romans, because under Roman law at the time, the penalty for adultery could not be death, Jesus would also lose his reputation of compassion amongst the crowds. But if Jesus does say to not stone her, if he says, okay, I'm going to be gracious, you know, let her go, it's not a big deal, or whatever, then Jesus, as a first century rabbi, that just phrase means a Bible teacher, as a rabbi would be seen as someone who is not actually being faithful to God's scriptures. What is Jesus going to do? Now, what Jesus does next, I think, is brilliant. He begins to, you know, write in the ground, you know, like you do, right? And he begins to doodle in the ground, and it's at this point, if you read a stack of books, Bible nerds just kind of love to go off the charts and debate, what exactly is Jesus writing? Have you ever wondered that? What is Jesus scribbling in the ground as the Pharisees are, you know, continuing to question him? Now, 
It's not the main point of the story, but one of the things that Jesus could potentially be doing is that he could be alluding to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17, it says this. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe alluding to the fact that, you know what, Pharisees, you're the ones who have forsaken the Lord, not this woman. Or Jesus might be referring to Exodus 32 because in Exodus 32 it says the Ten Commandments were, quote, written by the finger of God. Now, again, regardless, we don't know for sure what Jesus is doing as he's writing in the ground. But what is clear is that Jesus doesn't seem all that interested in playing the religious leader's game at this point. He seems to have better ideas, you know, namely drawing in the ground. But as the Pharisees keep pressing Jesus and they keep asking, again, Jesus, what, are, what do you say? What are we supposed to do in this moment? Jesus, being the most brilliant, well-thought human being to ever walk this planet, has this brilliant line where he says, let him who is without sin be the first one to cast a stone at her. Now, the, these moments in the life of Jesus where he seemingly, he's given like two options and that's it, you know, he has a few of these throughout the Gospels, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, right? Was this man more born blind because of his sin or his parents? And it's either option A or option B, but Jesus always has this creative third way on offer. In Jesus here, he says that line, let him who is without sin be the first one to cast their stone. And one at a time, the text says, from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and walk away. Again, try to, try to imagine yourself being there in that moment. Being the woman at that point. And just hearing the thud of each stone drop. And seeing your accusers. Seeing the ones that want to put you to death leave one by one. Until all that's left, the text says, is Jesus and the woman. Where Jesus then asks the woman and says, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And the woman replies with, no one, sir. And Jesus, that famous line, then neither do I condemn you. And I believe this to be a prophetic line for so many of us in this room today. Neither do I condemn you. Hear Jesus say this over your life today. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, what Jesus has just done there in those last few lines, what he's spoken to both the Pharisees and the woman, is a beautiful, beautiful way that Jesus is inviting both the Pharisees and the woman into a new way of living, a new way of being. A new way that, that operates in light of God's grace and God's love and God's compassion. A new way that isn't marked by the old patterns of relating, but by new ways of, of relating and living in God's kingdom and in God's way. And it begins to help us understand how this speaks and applies to us today. You know, there's a lot we could say as far as, you know, how does this story speak to us here in the new year, here in 2019? But I just want to offer sort of three thoughts as to how this begins to speak to us as apprentices today. So the first one is that Jesus challenges performance. Jesus challenges performance. You know, that, again, that famous line, notice the order of how Jesus says it. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, then neither do I condemn you. What does he say first? Neither do I condemn you, 
Go and sin no more. Go now and leave your life of sin. The order matters. Why? Because the, the woman's moral performance was not a precondition for the grace of Jesus. The woman's performance, whether morally or whatever the case may be, was not a precondition for the love of Jesus. And the same thing applies to us today. You know, we often, I think, as human beings, as followers of Jesus, believe the lie that somehow our performance, our moral performance, is a precondition for the love and grace of God. And it's just simply not true. We might not explicitly ever say that because, you know, we know the Bible, right? We know what it says, but we might think that. We might live like that internally in our own heads, that somehow my moral performance is, is a precondition for the love and grace of God in my life. And it's just simply not true. It's a lie. You know, for, for, me, and, for me and my family in particular, it's something that I have personally struggled with over the past few months in particular. You know, my story, our story as a family... Has been um, has been this long and long journey. I'll put it like that. Um, a few years ago, we moved down here to the Monterey area from Washington, from Washington State, um, believing that God had called us and God was telling us to to come down here and that we were going to start and plant a new church here in the area. And, you know, we were excited with vision and just excitement for what God was, you know, going to do through that whole process. And God had been working and was working through it all. Um, but last fall, last October, November time frame, uh, my wife and I made the difficult decision that we needed to close things down with the church. And kind of the aftermath of that. And for a variety of reasons, we decided to close things down, but just kind of the aftermath of that, of processing what that all means and what that all, that whole experience and struggling with, with, this, with these ideas of failure, of not achieving, of not like living up to a standard that I set for myself, whatever the case may be, this idea of trying to, you know, wanting to perform well, right? Of wanting to do well and inevitably succeeding and struggling with what it means that, you know, I started and led a church plant that inevitably, you know, isn't around anymore. And just kind of working through that and struggling with hearing God's voice and what it means to actually trust that God is, is leading our family forward and trusting and believing that God is for me and not, you know, hasn't abandoned me or doesn't, you know, have some sort of plan for us in the future, whatever the case may be. And it's been a struggle, a process to work through some of that. And I guess what I'm, you know, trying to say here is that even through all of that, you know, it's, it's still a process and it's still something that I'm working through and that we're working through. And it's, it's, it's a weird experience. Let me just say that. But through all of that, God has been so gracious to us. You know, so many of our friends that were a part of the church plant have been faithful and encouraging to us through that. So many of you and our experience here at Wellspring has been so good for my wife, Shy and I, whether it's been just hearing some of the teaching from Tony or the worship or a prayer afterwards or conversations, you know, out hanging out after, after the gathering here. God has met us and has been so gracious to us, reminding us week in and week out that it is not about performance. It's not about whether I succeeded or didn't succeed. That God's love is not based on how I do or don't do. 
And even though that we might have, you know, not succeeded in the way that I thought, but God has still been faithful. God has still been gracious. And I guess what I'm trying to say, I'm sorry, it's a little bit rambly there, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that the grace of God was not just for that woman 2,000 years ago in John chapter 8. It was not just for me and my family over the past few months, but it is for all of us here in this place today. Here in, 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 in this room today, if you are here, God's grace is for you. That Jesus stands here amid, amongst us in this place offering himself, offering his life, offering his grace and his love. And there's nothing you can do to earn that. It's freely given to you. And to continue in the old ways of thinking that somehow your performance is what earns God's love is just not true. Is just not the gospel. Is just not the way of Jesus. And Jesus stands here and invites you. Come, be a part of my kingdom, my way of living, and it's all of grace. Maybe like the woman, it's about leaving old patterns of life and trusting that Jesus' way is actually good news. Maybe like the Pharisees, it's giving up that self-righteous performance standard and trusting that, okay, it's not about my performance, but it's about trusting and following what Jesus has done for me. Regardless, again, Jesus is inviting you in his grace to come follow him. And that's the first thing I wanted to just mention. Jesus challenges performance. The second thing is Jesus challenges this you do you mentality. You know, again, we love that line where Jesus says, you know, neither do I condemn you, right? Especially in front of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, it's kind of punk rock, subversive, you know, like sticking it to the man kind of a thing, you know, but we have to be careful though, because it's easy to import sort of our culture's definition of like grace and freedom and all of that into our reading of the New Testament and think that's what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is not saying to the woman there in John 8, you know, you know, neither do I condemn you, go do whatever you want, right? That's not what Jesus says. He clearly says, neither do I condemn you, then go now leave your life of sin. You know, this idea of, of freedom in our culture is often, again, defined as just, just go do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good. But for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, freedom is not just found in your own personal fulfillment. Freedom is found by coming and aligning yourself with Jesus and his kingdom. And trusting that in that framework, that's where true freedom is found. Paul says it in the book of Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Paul would go on to say to go back into the old way would actually be a form of slavery, not freedom. You know, again, we're all products of our culture. We're all influenced, whether explicitly or implicitly, by our culture at large. And oftentimes, I've found that as followers of Jesus even, that there's often maybe one or two areas, if we're honest, in our life that are probably more defined by this you-do-you mentality as opposed to Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' vision. You know, it's kind of like, you know, having kids, like wandering kids. You know, one moment they're right next to you, you know, all behaving well. The next moment they're in Target and they're playing hide-and-seek with you in the clothing department, that sort of thing. And you're frightened and panicking, where are my kids kind of thing. So it's like, you know, you have these areas in our life where, yeah, things are going well. But then, you know, more often than not, it's kind of the you-do-you mentality. We're just kind of wandering off. And the question I just want to pose to us this morning is what area or what areas in your, in your life might those be? You know, what areas 
might be more defined by you do you than Jesus' kingdom. You know, I don't ask that to create a sense of guilt or shame or condemnation. No, not, please hear my heart in that. You know, think about why we're here this morning. Like why we gather each and every Sunday. You know, to sing and to worship to King Jesus, to reorient our minds and our lives around him so that we might be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. And part of that is being honest. This is a safe place. We're all in process. No one comes through these doors having it all figured out. Not even close, right? We all need the grace of God. And we all need those areas where God can speak to us, to encourage us, to help conform us more into the image of Jesus. So that's the second thing. Jesus challenges you to you. The last thing I want to just briefly talk about as we close is this idea that Jesus is inviting us all into something new. You know, for both the Pharisees and the woman, Jesus was inviting both of them into a new way of being, a new way realized by his grace. And he does the same for you and I today. That Jesus stands here again inviting all of us to follow him in his new way of being, in his new way of living in light of God's kingdom. Whether you've been a Christian, or you ha- you, whether you're not a follower of Jesus, or you've been a Christian for 50 years, the invitation is the same. Come and follow. Come trust that Jesus' way is good news. And again, there's a lot of us here this morning, Right? which means there's a lot of different stories, and this idea of Jesus inviting you to trust him and to follow him might look differently for any number of us here. And it's hard for me or anyone to say what exactly that might be. That might have to do with your finances, might have to do with your singleness, your parenting, your school, whatever the case may be. Jesus is inviting you to follow him in his way of living. You know, I just want to think about this in, in, in one way for a second here. Think about how the women in the story might have, you know, said yes to Jesus' invitation and begin to follow Jesus through the rest of her life. You know, I highly doubt that this woman, as Jesus says to her, you know, go now and leave your life of sin. And as she is being transformed, I highly doubt that she just kind of followed Jesus in isolation. I highly doubt she just kind of went about doing her own thing, following Jesus on her own. I, I would venture to say that this woman probably was in community together. That the transformation, that the newness that Jesus was going to bring in and through her life happened in community. And the same is true for us as followers of Jesus. As Jesus is inviting all of us together to follow him, it's often done in community. I would say even the majority of the time, it's done in community. I mean, you can count on one hand the amount of times in the Bible God directly just does some transformative work in someone's life apart from another human being being involved. God often, more often than not, works through community, us gathering together. And so as Jesus is inviting all of us into his new way, of his way of following him, may I just submit to you that that's going to be done together, in community, gathering, whether that's you talking with someone after the gathering, whether that's gathering with a few other friends, or even practically as a church, We're going to have some communities and classes launching later this month. And I would just highly encourage you to make space for that, to to be a part of those gatherings, to be together with us as we seek to follow Jesus together, trusting that his way is actually good news. You know, as we close, I want to invite the worship team up. You know, and as we think about, again, how Jesus is inviting all of us, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is making all things new. 
And that there one day will be no more death, no more suffering, no more pain. All the evil and the injustice and the brokenness that plagues God's good world will be fully and finally removed. And his kingdom will come. And we long for that day, for God's healing presence to infiltrate every fiber of the universe, to make all things new. We long for that. But in the meantime, we still get to participate in that. We are invited to participate in in Jesus' vision today, following him, trusting him, believing that his way is good news, that his grace is for you today. And so as we sing and as we worship Jesus, I just want to invite us to to, to ask God to, to speak to us, to ask God to move in our midst, that God would encourage us, that God would strengthen us, that God would lead us forward in this new year, trusting that his grace is for you today. Why don't we stand and and pray together? Jesus, we thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for your goodness. And as we sing to you this morning, may we be reminded once again of how much you are for us of your grace and love. May you help us to walk together following you in this new year that we would be more conformed in the image of you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.